0: Welcome to episode 31 of Silver Screeners. I'm your host Frank, and as always, thank you for hitting that play or download button to have a listen to all things movie-related past, present, and future. It's November as of this recording, and in less than a week it'll be Thanksgiving, at least here in the United States. A holiday that means a lot of things to a lot of people, and (laughs) sometimes even good things. Some dread it, maybe with good reason, maybe not. And then there are those who desperately want to make it the perfect family holiday, and both of these scenarios are played out in the two movies that are the focus of today's show. So whether your gatherings are big, small, or non-existent, whether it's a day of sincere pleasantries and invigorating catch-ups with loved ones, or A day of taking deep breaths as you make yourself look fresh as a daisy while muttering unrepeatable curses in your head at Great Aunt Petunia, who wants the dirt on every kid's latest school grades, or a passive-aggressive Uncle Wilbur, who's vocally aghast that you've had the same dead-end job for 20 years. It's a day of gratitude. And it's also the perfect time for enjoying a movie or two that depicts family reunions with petty personality differences, maybe sometimes even big ones, and the chaotic kitchens and the abundance of flowing wine that brings out the claws and the tentacles. These on-screen family dynamics that play up these complicated human behaviors for laughs and sometimes for sentiment. Today's movie is a 1995's Home for the Holidays, directed by Jodie Foster and starring an ensemble cast including Holly Hunter, Robert Downey Jr., and Bancroft, Dylan McDermott, Geraldine Chaplin, Claire Danes and Charles Durning. The other movie is 2003's Pieces of April, a small-budget independent film written and directed by Peter Hedges, and starring Katie Holmes, Oliver Platt, Patricia Claxon in an Oscar-nominated performance, Sean Hayes, Allison Pill, Alice Drummond, R&B artist Sisko, and Derek Luke. We'll bring some dialogue to the Thanksgiving dinner table like this gem from Holly Hunter and Home for the Holidays. And of course, if you haven't seen these movies before, just remember what actress Lauren Bacall said. You know what's coming next. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So Thanksgiving Day, in my family at least, from before I was a zygote, it was always in Rosalindale, or Rozzy as the locals call it. A gathering of about 30 people. My father was one of seven. My grandparents would open up their front door and this massive mess of mandoses would come through. The years go by, things evolve as they always do, my grandparents pass away, the house is sold outside of the family, my father's been gone for about 20 years or so, a lot of my cousins and I have kids of our own, and guess what Thanksgiving is now? A massive mess of mandoses coming through my good aunt's front door as she took over hosting duties a good number of years ago. A few relatives, including her, still in Rozzy, so the setting never changed. Except for last year, the first holiday season afflicted by the pandemic. We all stayed home. My wife and kids and I, we had dinner for four. We ordered dinner from a local food vendor selling pre-cooked turkey dinners out of a truck. Shout out, by the way, to The Butcher's Daughter. The website is thebutchersdaughterfood.com. They're based in New Hampshire, but they make stops all over, I guess. I guess they travel their truck all around New England. You can schedule pickup times. At least this is what they did last year. I have no idea if they still do it now. But it worked out well, cause we helped out a local independent business, and we didn't have to cook a thing. Another thing that I did was take some time out in the afternoon to meet up with most of the relatives on Zoom, so in the Zoom squares you saw a massive mess of Mendozas. We all pre-arranged for that. Similar scenarios for a lot of people, I think. It was crazy, it was strange, but we made it happen. And speaking of making things happen, let's bring on the usual spoiler-free plot setup of both of today's movies, and then you'll get the spoiler alert for a spoiler-filled list of behind-the-scenes fun facts. We'll then close out with the poll results, the trivia segment, and listener shout-outs for the final segment. And as the late, great Jackie Gleason would always say, and away we go. First up, 1995's Home for the Holidays, based on a short story by Chris Redant. I don't know if it's Redant or Radant or Radant, it's R-A-D-A-N-T. Produced and directed by Jody Foster. So as this one begins, the Santana song Evil Ways is playing over the opening credits, only it's a cover done by another band, it's not the original track. There's a close-up of a white eggshell getting picked up, and then the yolk in somebody's palm dropped into a glass. Cleverly, you then see, in the opening credits, an egg picture, which is the name of Jodie Foster's film production company. It's tempera painting, it's a close-up of paintbrushes scraping on a canvas. The leading character, named Claudia Larson, she renovates Renaissance paintings. She's not the original artist, she renovates. And this is all visual foreshadowing of what the character is about to go through psychologically in the movie. Someone who focuses on the details of her life and tries to put it together and make it look right and recreate it. So she's all into her work and she's having these physical and metaphorical strokes of creative inspiration when her 60-year-old boss Peter, played by Austin Pendleton, gets her attention. She takes off her headphones, the music stops, she's sneezing, and she's coughing because she's got the flu, but she doesn't care. Not at this point, at least. And he asks her, flying home to your parents for Thanksgiving? And she says yeah, and she's happily in the zone about her work, she's all excited, she's in a good place. But then Peter takes her into his office, sits her down to drop a bombshell. He says to her, I'm sorry, you're fired, I have to, we lost 90% of federal money, and you're the youngest. And this is where I want to include a few words about this opening from Jodie Foster herself from the director commentary on the DVD. She said, and I quote, This little piece of the movie has a lot of special significance for me, because basically it's just this one moment that every artist faces, where they've done the best work of their life, where they really feel like they finally understood what they were doing, and and all the other times they were faking it. Everything else they've ever done is phony, and they finally have come to have a connection with what they do. And it's hard to describe, and it's sort of a bliss experience, and you take your headphones off, and somebody says, you're fired, or you suck, or that was terrible. And it's very hard to bounce back. It's very hard to ever open up again. It's hard to fall in love with what you do again. It's hard to reveal yourself again. You shut down. And so this film is sort of about 24 hours or 48 hours in someone's life where they've shut down, and then have to figure out how the hell to ever open up again, end quote. So Claudia sobs. She then hugs him, and they kiss on the mouth, She drops them. she covers her mouth, and Peter says to her, I didn't mean to do that. God, I hate the holidays. Next thing we see is her sitting in her car and she's listening to That's Life, (laughs) appropriately enough, and that's when her daughter Kit gets into the car and she gets into the driver's seat. She's driving her mother to the airport and she is sympathizing with her because Claudia has to fly out to spend Thanksgiving with her family when she has no friggin' idea what the point is since she's alienated from them. And her daughter Kit's just telling her to keep breathing, keep breathing, mom, I'm having Thanksgiving at Tim's house, Tim's our boyfriend, and says out the window, Oh mom, I'm gonna have sex with Tim. Now, I mean we love each other and you told me when the time came I'd know it. And we talked it out like adults because we're not jerks, but we realize fully it's a major step and we're not taking this lightly. And I just wanted you to know that. That's all. That we're gonna do it. That's all. Safely and not in the car. Happy Thanksgiving, mom. So, with that verbal winning lottery ticket... Kit drives off, leaving Claudia with her mouth open like she's about to catch a fly. She stumbles into the airport terminal where everything that can go wrong does, including losing her coat, having to sit next to a woman who won't shut up. So chaos reigns in Claudia's life. And to go back to what Jodie Foster says in the DVD commentary, quote, I wanted to set up that this is pretty much the worst day of her life and that you're hit with all of these emotional whammies that you're just not ready for. First, she has the flu. I can't think of anything worse, so you're absolutely sweating and clammy and you feel like you're gonna throw up at any minute, but you still have to go through with this family obligation, which you don't really know why you're doing it anyway. Your daughter tells you that she's gonna have sex for the first time this weekend, and you're not gonna be there. Your boss fires you from the only job you've ever loved. You lose your beautiful black cashmere coat in the airport, and you're surrounded by a lot of people who are going off to do the exact same thing as you. Just to set up that moment where you start losing your identity little by little and you're not sure of anything, end quote. And if I can insert a little commentary of my own... What cracks me up is you see her sitting in her seat in the airplane and she's got a window seat and about two or three seats over from her you see this guy with his eyes shut and his mouth is wide open, his head is leaned back and it's obvious that he's just probably popped a few helpings of Valium. It's just a great visual to go along with what Jodie Foster says about how the holidays can be so stressful for so many people. The traveling, the family gatherings, and all of that. So right there from her airport seat she picks up her 90s era cell phone, she calls her little brother, And she says to him, go and spend Thanksgiving with your friends. I would, if I had any, which I don't, because then I'd have to send them all birthday cards, which is a lie, of course, because I'm only looking for pity. And then she begins to cry, and she says, I really wish you were going to be there, kiddo, because I'm sick as a dog, and I made out with my boss, and my kid's going to have sex, and then I got fired, or the other way around, or whatever. Oh my god, I cannot believe I just said this to a machine. Get rid of this tape, please. It is absolutely no big deal. I'm fine. I just miss you guys. Happy Thanksgiving. She hangs up the phone. Her flight arrives, her parents meet her at the airport, we meet Anne Bancroft as her mother, and Charles Durning as her father. Bancroft immediately presents as the overbearing but loving mother. Where's your coat? Oh, take mine. She's saying to her Oh ma, slow down, you're making me nervous. She's grilling her about her job, and she says to her, You're such a great painter. Why hasn't some guy from Japan given you $63 million for one lousy painting? And Claudia says, I'm not a painter anymore, mom. I work in a museum. I'm thinking about changing jobs, actually. And Bancroft looks at her and says flatly, They fired you. They fired you. I got money. I got money. No, 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 ma'am. No, I can take care of myself. I'm I'm not broke. And that leaves Claudia just saying to herself in a great close-up, under her breath, float, just float, just float. We're then treated to a series of title cards for the rest of the movie that sort of breaks the movie up into different themed segments. And this one says, Company. So the company is arriving, and it is her brother Tommy, played by Robert Downey Jr., who arrives with a guy named Leo, played by Dylan McDermott. And immediately the question is, Tommy, where's your boyfriend Jack? So Leo is the guest, not Jack, and she's never met him before, so she's now in dismay because Jack was someone she felt really connected to. And I don't want to say too much more about what plays out with all the different family dynamics because it's just, it's a fun movie where you can laugh You can chuckle at least, and you can just enjoy the family dysfunction. It very much plays up on the relatability and the the comedic value of screwy family dynamics. You got goody-two-shoes siblings. You got the family screw-ups. You got the disastrous dinner at the table. You have the passive-aggressive comments. You have that one family member who's targeted as the butt of all of the jokes. You have the loopy aunt, Aunt Gladys. And cue the family drama, or comedy, or both, depending on whose point of view you're siding with. And like I said, that's where I'm stopping with the plot set up for Home for the Holidays. Let's pivot now towards the year 2003, so this is 8 years later. We're gonna take a look at another movie called Pieces of April, which premiered at a few film festivals throughout September and October of that year. I think it was the Toronto Film Festival, the Chicago International Film Festival. But Pieces of April opened in the U.S. on November 28th, then in Brazil on Christmas Day, followed by the U.K., Australia, Spain, Greece, Austria, Mexico, throughout the late winter and early spring of 04. Definitely a modest budget. It was the directorial debut of Peter Hedges, who also wrote it. He wrote the novel and the screenplay, actually, of 1993's What's Eating Gilbert Grape, with Johnny Depp and Juliette Lewis and Leo DiCaprio, which was his first Oscar-nominated role. Pieces of April was shot in just 16 days, It's a story that has a lot of parallels to Home for the Holidays, primarily in having the leading character set up as sort of the family black sheep. In this case, it's 21-year-old April, played by Katie Holmes, and what sets this one apart from Home for the Holidays, though, is that there's a dramatic thrust in having terminal illness factor into the family dynamic. April's mother Joy, played by Patricia Claxon, is dealing with breast cancer, and it's heavily implied that this will more than likely be her final Thanksgiving. So how do you bridge severe family gaps when the two people at odds with each other barely even speak to each other anymore? Don't get me wrong, there's some comedy in here too, but it's more, of a, it's more of an eccentric, deadpan, dark kind of comedy as opposed to Robert Downey Jr.'s mugging for the camera or the loud physical comedy of Steve Guttenberg, Dylan McDermott, and Downey tackling each other on the front lawn. And Peter Hedges has said that he began the film in response to his mother, actually dying of cancer, even though the movie itself was not their story. In the director's commentary, what he says is, quote, It's a movie made out of something that I learned, that life is fragile, life is passing, and if we don't get it said to the people we need to say it to, we may never get that chance, end quote. So it's obviously an extremely personal movie for him. In fact, if you take a look at the end credits, he does dedicate it to his mother. You see in the end credits a little inscription that says, In memory of my mother Carol Hedges, who loved every day. Pieces of April, like Home for the Holidays, it does play up the screwy dynamics in families, that factor for laughs and for comedy, but it's a totally different tone. In Home for the Holidays, you're laughing, you're amused, you're entertained. You're amused and you're entertained with Pieces of April as well, but the comedy, it comes from a much darker place because it's more of a black comedy, I guess you could say. Sometimes the humor works and sometimes it doesn't, I guess it depends on personal tastes. Either way, the opening shot of Pieces of April is a close-up of a hand on a wooden floor next to what looks like a magazine or a newspaper folded in half. The handheld camera pans up to reveal the titular April, played by Katie Holmes, who at the time was fresh off of the TV series Dawson's Creek. She's lying in bed in her stomach, there's a little bit of movement, and rolling over closer to her is her boyfriend Bobby, played by Derek Luke. And he's kissing her shoulder, and presumably he's looking for a little more movement out of her, and she says she's sleeping and appears preoccupied. He then gets serious and asks her if she's okay. She shakes her head no. Then there's a sudden jump cut to him jumping on the bed and saying, get up, get up, and she's laughing and saying no. Then another jump cut to him kneeling by her side saying, come on, this is going to be a big day. We don't want to miss this opportunity. And then she sleepily says to him, who's coming today? And he replies, you know who's coming. He pulls her out of bed, she's protesting, he picks her up, carries her into the shower. You then see her post-shower, sitting in the bathroom, staring absently into the mirror, her hair's all wet. He calls out to her through the closed bathroom door, and she answers, I'm coming. And then a couple of beats, she doesn't move a muscle. And then she says, here I come. A couple of more beats, she's just sitting there. To say the least, it's a pretty cryptic opening, but then there's a change of scenery because we're brought into the bedroom of April's father, Jim Burns, played by Oliver Platt. He wakes up to his alarm clock, calls out to his wife Joy, can't find her. He asks his daughter Beth, played by Allison Pill, and his son Tommy, played by John Gallagher Jr. And they also are looking for her. He finds her, sitting in the passenger seat of the car in the garage, just sitting there by herself with the doors all closed, staring straight ahead. They just gaze at each other. And then he simply yells, Okay, everybody, let's move it. Might not sound like too promising of an opening, but stick with it. Back to April, she's taking the wrapping off of a turkey in her kitchen sink, and she's struggling with it, and she eventually picks it up with both her hands, but then it slips out of her hands and it drops on the floor. Bobby goes over to her, he helps her pick it up, they toss it into the sink, they rinse it off, he helps her putting the stuffing together, they shove the stuffing up the bird's butt with celery sticks. And meanwhile, she's lamenting, Bobby, they're probably not even gonna come. Swivel back over to her family's house, her sister Beth is saying how selfish it is of April to have everyone go to New York, should mom even be traveling. And Jim says to her, sweetie, if not now, then when? And Beth won't let it drop. She says, look, I offered to make the meal. I don't know what makes her think she can cook all of a sudden. And I got an A in home ec. And he says how proud he is of her for that. And so you get the feeling that this is a goody two-shoes kind of a daughter who's always seeking the verbal approval of her parents. She always has this neurotic need to prove herself better than big sister. In the car, by the way, the brother and the mother, Joy, they're waiting. She says, honk the horn. He says, it'll wake the neighbors, and she says, screw the neighbors, honk the goddamn horn. She then leans over and aggressively honks at herself. Beth and her father, they're back up in her bedroom. He's helping her zip up the back of her dress. They hear the horn honking, and she gets all angsty and flustered, and she says, dad, the zip is not the problem. April is the problem. So we're not even five or ten minutes in, and already you have this collection of strange scenes where nothing but negativity seems to be the rule of the day. Not exactly a kind of movie some may say that I want to watch during the Thanksgiving season, but again, stick with it, because it does go somewhere. It's a movie about bitterness. It's a movie about how different personalities deal with bitterness, how they all try in their own ways to bury it, how some of them might want to acknowledge it, they just don't know how, or maybe they're not able to. There's anger and there's rage. She's aggressively chopping away at onions and potatoes, and that was a directorial decision. Peter Hedges said to Katie Holmes, chop the crap out of those potatoes, you're angry, you've got a lifetime's worth of anger in you, take it out on the potatoes. And you watch, she goes ballistic on these things, she pulverizes them, she tackles in their end zone. First time I saw this, I was there like, whoa, dog, calm down. But the movie begins to show more of a bit of direction. When Bobby takes out a set of salt and pepper shakers that are ceramic turkeys. And she says, oh, where'd you get those? And he said, oh, I got them for 50 cents, you know, got them for today. And she says to him, they look just like the ones from when I was little. He says, oh, really? She says, yeah. My mother told me when I was holding them to be careful. They're worth more than you are. He says, that's terrible. What happened to them? She said they broke. A hammer I was holding fell on them. And then she takes the two that he just bought and she tosses them into the trash, but probably not a surprise to say that that's not the last that we're going to see of salt and pepper. Back to April's family, they swing by what is presumably an old-age home, and they pick up Grandma Dottie, played by Alice Drummond, and astute viewers may say to yourselves, Wait a minute, where do I know her from? This is the same actress who plays Alice, the librarian, in the opening of the original Ghostbusters. So now we have a carload of five people, and the entourage swings by a Krispy Kreme drive through and they're all talking over each other, ordering at the window, when Jim says, Remember everybody, April's cooking. And after a beat joy then leans over and she calls out into the speaker we'll need an extra dozen glazed and the next thing you see they're chomping down on the grub and joy says how could anyone not believe in god as she's happily devouring these confectionery delights then back to april who is flipping her wig because the oven is not working she tries making a few calls to repair people they're all closed for thanksgiving and then we cut back to the family and this is where we begin to say oh okay There is a story here. I mean, it's where we understand more of what's going on with Joy. The scene suddenly opens in the restroom of a gas station where Joy is sick. Nothing is seen, it's more the sounds and the understanding of what she's going through physically. She readjusts her wig in the bathroom mirror, then she walks out, but this is not a moment of, let's decide that we're on team Joy. She immediately goes back to showing that very abrupt, very harsh side to her personality, especially when it comes to how she communicates with her kids. She comes out, and Beth, the sister, turns to her and says to her, Mom, hi, all cheerful. And Joy just glares at her, walks past her, and says, Beth, back off. She gets into the car, and she's holding snacks for everybody. Fritos, Doritos, nutter butters. Jim grabs it all, and he throws it into the dumpster. He says to her, we're going to have a very nice time. And she says, you don't actually believe that. And he says, it's possible. I think, Yes. And then he begins to drag her back to the car, and she says, No, no, we're not going. It'll be better that way. Instead of April showing up with some new piercing or tattoo or, God forbid, spending the night, we can just show up, experience the disaster that is her life, smile through it, and then go home. They get into the car, and things take a more serious turn when he says to her, Look, she's straightening her life out. Eddie the drug dealer has history. She's got a new job, a new apartment. She's met this new guy who reminds her of me. Cut back to April, who is desperately going from door to door throughout her dingy apartment building, asking neighbors, can I use your stove, can I use your stove? There is an odd scene where the family decides to hold this impromptu funeral service for a squirrel they run over on the road on their journey. There's another hilariously awkward moment where they stop off at a, I think it's supposed to be a Christmas tree farm or something. It's got ceramic Santas, and they sit there for a camera in pained silence, smiling to the sound of the camera timer. The look on the grandmother's face is priceless. It's so posed. It's so forced. It's so phonally pleasant. You finally hear the camera shutter go off. And (laughs) Joy... The fake smile disappears from her face, and she says, Well, there's our Christmas card. And Jim says, Without April? And Beth says, Since when is she in it? So back in New York City, April's in her apartment house in Hell's Kitchen, and she's trying desperately to find this oven. She's going from neighbor to neighbor, as I said her boyfriend Bobby, he's the first character to offer anything in the way of some sense of coherence and purpose to this string of weird scenes. He's talking to a friend of his and he says, when I was a kid and the car I was in flipped over, I was trapped. My mother lifted that car and pulled me to safety. She had this moment of unbelievable strength because she got love. Maybe that's what love does. Now it does not seem like I'm telling much of a linear narrative here and that's really the way the film comes across. I have to admit, I first saw the movie back in 2003 when it came out. I saw it primarily because it was an Oscar nominee and I wanted to catch up on all the nominees that year. The first half of it does feel pretty aimless. It feels like there's no direction. You're left saying to yourself, I'm not following this, I'm not getting into it, I can't like any of these characters, this just is not working. That was my reaction at first. But trust me when I tell you that there are some moments that do deliver some pretty good payoffs. I mean, any description of the first two-thirds of the movie won't be a selling point. You need the mundane and you need the odd and the quirky and the deadpan. It is a significant build-up to get to the really bigger moments of the film that are delivered in the last third or so. Probably Patricia Claxton's greatest scene is with Oliver Platt, who plays her husband. She gets out of the car and she spews out 21 years worth of hurt and pain at the hands of April through dialogue that'll ring true for a, a lot of viewers, probably. She's screaming out, I have too many memories, I have too many memories. It's not necessarily a movie that hits you between the eyes consistently. I mean, moments like that do. But it's more one that lingers in your mind afterwards, and then you think about it, and you realize just how achingly accurate so much of it is, especially the last two or three minutes. I do gotta say that those last few minutes, that's where you really get the biggest emotional payoff. It makes watching the rest of the movie worth sitting through. Not that it's bad, but it's admittedly got an inconsistent pace to it that might make one or two minds wander off a little. But stick with it, like I say. That probably sounds a little too harsh. I don't mean to make Pieces of April sound like it's not worth a watch. The truth is that there's really not much in the way of progressive action. It's spending time with the characters, not spending the film's running time witnessing one thing after another, after another, happening to them. It's more their reactions to themselves and each other, not to the world around them. They live in their own contained worlds. And what we see is how they choose to live in those worlds while convincing themselves that things are better off when they keep themselves safely away from each other. And I think that's the key word as far as their mindsets go. Safely. Keeping safely away from each other. Watch it keeping in mind that it's character development, it's character studies. Then that might give it more cohesion in the way of storytelling, especially when things begin to gel later on. Takes a while to get there, but it is well worth the wait. Anyone who has ever experienced strained relationships with people they believe that they're supposed to love them the most, anyone who's ever felt betrayed or slighted, they'll recognize, if not the circumstances of these characters, they will recognize at least the emotional journey they go on. They allow themselves, you know, each in their own ways, at their own paces, to verbalize things that never came out before. Depending on individual life circumstances and personal dynamics within individual families, Someone may look at these characters and say, that's exactly the kind of problem in my family. Maybe instead they might say, that's the way it could have gone. Or that's the way I'm glad that it didn't go. Or that's the way I wish it went. Or that's the way it almost went. That's what makes Pieces of April relatable, if not necessarily a direct on-screen parallel to stories from our own lives, but a direct on-screen parallel to the jumbled, messy mix of emotions that we all experience at one point or another that make up the human condition, especially as it relates to how we sometimes feel about people we're supposed to feel closest to, or ideally feel closest to at least. It lets you ponder the moments that direct our relationships in whatever directions they go in. A lot of those moments that may be in our control and a lot of them that are just not. But there's the setup of Pieces of April, a movie that in its own way is relatable, if not, again, on a narrative level, then definitely on the emotional one. That's what ultimately, for me anyway, does make it work. I don't want to say what makes the last few minutes of the movie so impactful. Just take my word for it. The last few minutes of the movie are impactful. And I think the music has a lot to do with that too. And speaking of the music... It is time now to pivot towards the the behind-the-scenes fun facts, so here is your spoiler warning, your spoiler alert. These behind-the-scenes facts might reveal something about the movies that you might not want to hear yet, if you want to revisit them first, or if you want to watch them for the first time. We'll begin with Pieces of April. Number five. The supporting cast of Pieces of April, some of them might be familiar faces. For one thing, we have Lilius White, who plays April's neighbor Yvette. She's a veteran of the children's show Sesame Street. She even makes an appearance in the Halloween program Elmo Says Boo, which was a staple in my household when my kids were little. Sean Hayes, Jack from the TV sitcom Will & Grace, he plays the neighbor Wayne. And according to Peter Hedges in the DVD director commentary, quote, sean hayes called when we were casting the film he called from la and he said that he would read he'd put himself on tape he'd come to new york he'd audition i said well sean really there's no need you've got the role and he shut all his scenes in one day cisco a founding member of the r&b quartet drew hill he plays a character named latrell who had originally auditioned to play bobby the boyfriend according to peter hedges quote cisco gave a great audition i said to him you know you're really great but you're about five or six inches shorter than Katie Holmes. And I just don't know if that's what Bobby should be, so much shorter. And he said, oh, okay. But I said, would you play Latrell?" And he did, end quote. Number four, the title of the film, Pieces of April, actually comes from a 1970s era song by Three Dog Night. Hedges was going to use the song, in fact, for the film's final scene. But then Stephen Merritt came in, saw the movie, and said, I really like this movie, but I wouldn't use that Three Dog Night song. And Hedges said to him, well, would you write something? and Stephen Merritt did. He's apparently Peter Hedges' favorite musician. Number three. Peter Hedges, this is his directorial debut, and he said, quote, Years ago, I had heard about a group of young people who went to cook a turkey for their first Thanksgiving in New York. They borrowed an apartment, and they went to cook the turkey, and the oven didn't work. They had to go around the building to get other people to borrow their stoves. And when I heard that story, I thought, that's a terrific way to put a bunch of people to get together who would normally not be together. That was the inspiration for Pieces of April. End quote. number two peter hedges has a son named lucas who was seven years old at the time of this movie's production lucas hedges is an oscar-nominated actor he plays casey affleck's nephew in manchester by the sea he also has roles in ladybird boy erased ben is back and three billboards outside ebbing missouri all academy award nominees at the age of seven he was listed in the end credits of pieces of april under special thanks And number one, according to notstarring.com, here are a few casting could have beens. Amanda Bynes auditioned for the lead role, but was turned down. She was deemed too young. Academy Award nominee Kathleen Quinlan. She plays Tom Hanks' wife in Apollo 13. She was all set to star as Joy, but she dropped out at the last minute, though I couldn't find out why. That left the role available for Patricia Claxon, who scored a Best Supporting Actress nomination, for playing this character who's a a dying but a self-absorbed and brittle woman, who shows no outward respect for her henpecked husband. She mocks her son and her younger teenage daughter. She swallows years' worth of hurt and betrayal by pretty much writing her oldest daughter April out of her life. And in the DVD bonus feature, Claxon has this to say about the movie, that it's a movie that asks the question, quote, can you live with regret? Are you capable of living with regrets in your life, and do you want to change that?" End quote. And I thought that was an interesting thing for her to say, so if I can add to that. Ultimately, you can say that this is a movie about rescuing things that you threw away, whether that's a set of salt-and-pepper shakers or a relationship. You know, they may have gotten chipped or damaged or broken, physically, metaphorically. But you can try to put them back together again as best you can. It may not fit perfectly, damage may be done, but the attempt is made. And that's got to account for something. Those are my own thoughts. And now let's pivot towards the fun facts for Home for the Holidays. Number five. Jodie Foster says in the DVD commentary that the opening credits where you see this egg yolk being used in this paint restoration. She says that's the the real way that you make tempera. It's a paint process used in the Renaissance using egg and pigment. You pull a yolk out of an egg without damaging it. She said Holly Hunter was seven years in a row a poultry handling champion in her hometown. Interesting tidbit. Number four, the music selections for the opening and ending of the film. The big idea was that the credits was a place of focus while the rest of the world fades out. As I mentioned before, it's a Santana song that was redone by a band called Rustic Root, a polygram band, and it reflects where Claudia is at the beginning of the movie. Jodie Foster says, quote, You people have to change, or I'm not going to love you. And I think that's probably somewhere where we all start in our 20s, where we look at our families and say, man, if you don't change, I can't accept you the way you are." By the time we get to the end of the movie where we have Janis Joplin singing Piece of My Hat, she's pretty much flipped her whole idea behind it and says, No matter how miserable you are, I guess I'm stuck loving you no matter what I do. End quote. Number three. The cast of Home for the Holidays, a lot of them, this was very much a mix and match. They all worked together before and they would again. For one thing, Robert Downey Jr. plays Charlie Chaplin in 1992's movie called Chaplin. The real-life daughter of Charlie Chaplin, Geraldine, She plays in Chaplin, her own paternal grandmother, Hannah, in 1992's Chaplin. How many times can I say Chaplin in one sentence? My God. Anne Bancroft and Claire Danes, they play older and younger versions of the same character in 1995's How to Make an American Quilt. They have no screen time together in either film. Both films came out in 1995. Anne Bancroft and Charles Durning, they play husband and wife in this movie. They also appear together in 1975's The Hindenburg, as well as the 1983 Mel Brooks movie To Be or Not To Be. And Steve Guttenberg and Austin Pendleton, they appear together in 1986's Short Circuit. And Claire Danes and David Strathairn, they appear together in 2010's Temple Grandin. Number two, Geraldine Chaplin, who plays Aunt Gladys. Jodie Foster said of her on the DVD commentary, quote, Geraldine's character is the one character that changed dramatically throughout the rehearsal process. It was a hard character to figure out, and Geraldine wasn't our first choice, only because she's really not old enough to play this part. She really should be over 70, and instead, Geraldine's a beautiful, gorgeous, black-haired raven beauty, but there's some madness about her that I was really attracted to. And it took us a long time in terms of the costumes and figuring out the tone of her character. We started her out looking like a Chanel-suited, old-school marm, and then realized that was the wrong idea. And the second we brought on the little reggae hat, her whole look suddenly made sense. End quote. And if you want an example of the kind of character that Jodie Foster created here, try this on for size. Aunt Gladys, she wears a necklace that she makes herself out of Fruit Loops and chomps away whenever she needs something to nibble on. And number one. On the DVD track, Jodie Foster says, quote, I would say most of the movie is, you know, there were some improvisations that were done during the rehearsal process that were put into the script. Robert Downey Jr., however, is another beast. He's somebody who can't say the same thing twice, and he comes up with everything that he says. He gets bored. (laughs) He's an actor who is sort of so smart that he gets bored, and so he has to create a little fun for himself and basically change all the lines every time around. And this is one of those few movies for him where he wasn't asked to not do that where he was not put in a box and told stop doing that and hit your mark and stick to the dialogue. He actually got to be himself, and we embraced that. Holly was his greatest fan, of course, and quickly realized during the rehearsal process that the movie was really about Holly and Robert, their characters, Tommy and Claudia, and that it was about these two outsiders, not just her, but two outsiders that didn't belong in this family. And their bond had been that they were the ones that disappointed their parents and that their parents couldn't relate to them, that they formed a subset family with each other of the alienated ones, the ones who spend Thanksgiving eating in the kitchen together. I didn't know that before the film started, and it just became clear to me the more I watched Downey and the more I watched the relationship that was about the two of them. And so we did a lot of changes in the script to sort of reflect that, reflect that that was the focus of the film rather than concentrating on the love story between Holly and Dylan McDermott. Although it is there that there is an attraction between the two of them, which she feels is awkward because she thinks that he's Tommy's boyfriend, that's not the primary part of the story. That's just an opportunity out there, that there's a moment that if she wasn't too scared, she could grab onto. But the love story is not the focus of the film. End quote. Alright, now let's lighten the mood one more time because it's time for the final segment of today's show, the poll results and the trivia. For this week's poll, I took a clip from the trailer for Pieces of April, a scene where April's family stops at the drive-thru of the Krispy Kreme, and they're all talking over each other. And after Jim says, Hey, everybody remember, April's cooking, Joy calls out to the speaker, We'll need an extra dozen glaze. So the poll asked, When facing a woefully assembled meal with a family outcast, Option A, grin and bear it. Option B, go to Krispy Kreme. It was split down the middle on Twitter. One vote for each, 50-50. And over on Facebook, Mary C., she offers an alternative. She said, rather than Krispy Kreme, she would head to the nearest bar. As for the trivia question last time, in the last episode, we dived into 1946's The Best Years of Our Lives in honor of Veterans Day, one of my top favorite films of all time. In one of the biggest upsets in Oscar history, what much lower-budgeted film nudged Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg's World War II film, off to the side and claimed the Best Picture Oscar in early 1999? This was for the Best Picture of 98. And the correct answer is Shakespeare in love. Keep your eyes open for those personalized memes, Mary C, as well as Tommy Goodwin from the podcast Rewatch, Relive, Repeat. Always a pleasure to see your trivia answers come rolling in. Anyone listening, play along for a little friendly competition. Doesn't matter when you are listening to any given episode, any question that you answer, you get a shout out on the next recorded episode and a personalized meme sent your way. They make for lovely screensavers, I'd imagine, and maybe something you can put on a mug or a t-shirt. Before we wrap up, there's just one tiny thing more. This episode's trivia question. And here it is. Robert Downey Jr. of Home for the Holidays went on to play Iron Man in the franchise of the same name in the Marvel movies. But Katie Holmes of Pieces of April has superhero movie street cred as well. She appears in what DC Comics movie as the character Rachel Dawes? Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Home for the Holidays or Pieces of April, any of the cast or crew involved, memories of your own that you want to share about either movie, just hit me up on my socials. Film Buff 1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And that's it for episode 31. Thank you, as always, for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and if you could take a second to give the show a rating on Apple, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts, please feel free to do so to help with the algorithms and get more people to discover the show. And if you feel compelled to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, I would be forever grateful for any honest feedback. So happy Thanksgiving, or whatever holiday you celebrate, whether it's now or any other point in the year. My name is Frank. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Until next time, keep on screening, and I leave you with a brief and cynical audio clip from Home for the Holidays that sums up perfectly how Holly Hunter's Claudia feels about forced family get-togethers that leaves her thinking to herself, Now what? When you go home, do you look around and wonder, who are these people? Where did I even come from?